If you love Sports Bazaar and you love Mick and myself and who doesn't, why wouldn't you want to sign up to Bazaar Plus, our membership program, for even more episodes? Just go to the link in the show notes to sign up. It's Sports Bazaar. Welcome aboard, everyone. Anyone isn't happy, we call it all off immediately. The hunt for the weirdest. There you go. Can you put out a fact sheet with this? <laughs> you my mind. I don't. I can't <laughs> keep up. Strangers. Catastrophic, amazing, bizarre. Multiple layers of stupidity coming together. What could go wrong? Most unbelievable. It's like a Coen Brothers movie. Stories to ever occur. And they're only going to get weirder from here. Get comfy, everyone. Some good, some bad. And some just bizarre, which we love. In the world of sport. How many chimneys could you do in a day? I've researched the tool. To France, not Sports Bizarre. Right, police are called in. <laughs> For the players. Dennis Rodman is telling you to calm down. Testicle soup. Can I just stop you for a second? Don't act like you've never done this. I feel like once again we've strayed away from what I've researched. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. An old couple who've got our spark back. <laughs> it's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest edition of Sports Bazaar with myself, Mick Malloy, and of course, Titus O'Reilly. How are you, Titus? I'm very well. Very okay, well. Uh, you're sitting back, you look happy. Uh, what have you got for me today? Well, it's one of our favourite topics, which is drinking and sport. Both exceptional, combined. Yeah, like yeah. Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> These days you can't get that drunk at sporting events because in Australia, at least, it's like mid-strength in, beer in Australia, you can Imagine how surprised I was when I went to Super Bowl and saw people drinking in utes parked at the front. Oh, yeah, front, the front, yeah, tailgating. tailgating. And every single person who walked into that arena was smashed, Yeah, I believe, before the Before the it even starts. And then, quite correctly, they stopped serving alcohol. Yeah. Well, I didn't know this, so I've been caught with my pants down. Mm. Let's call it three-quarter time or between the third and fourth, yeah. whatever you call it. They just go, no, mate, we're done. We don't serve serving, anything from yeah, here. Yeah. And I think they get away with it because I think if you're in New York, if you punch someone, you're probably going to go to jail. <laughs> They're fairly tough about it. But yeah. uh, over here, it's just everyone has a fight and forget I it. I remember there's a great documentary called Cricket in the 70s. Which is about, <laughs> and wow. they have film footage in Australia. They brought in a limit. You could bring alcohol in. Yeah, yeah. They brought in the limit of one slab per person. That's, That's 24, 24 cans. 24 cans of per beer. Per person and there was outrage. And there was people on, the, on saying to the media walking in with this slab over their thing <laughs> going, it's a bloody outrage, mate. <laughs> heads heads it's will a, roll. It's a nanny's day. The first time I ever went to the MCG, I think it was maybe the Centenary Test, 1977, and in front of me were two blokes carrying a bathtub full of ice and beer cans. <laughs> and people didn't mo- you were allowed. That was it. Yeah, yeah. We also had, sadly, it was called a beer winch, and it was basically if you went to the MCG, the SCG, yeah. whatever cricket ground, you wanted to, a girl in a bikini would go and get you drinks. For some money, yeah. For yeah. some money. So you pay her yeah. all that day, and she would wander off to get drinks. And it wasn't drinks. organised. It was just someone who showed up on the day to do it. Imagine that today. Could you just imagine the outrage? I know. If, oh and this God. is like only going, I remember in the it's 90s, recent. early 90s, I went to a cricket game at the G and we were all like 15. Yeah. Big group of us. And we all thought it's going to be hard to get alcohol at the ground. So yeah. we all got written off before we got to the sure. ground. Showed up, found it. Actually, it was really easy. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, drink all day at the cricket. When I was a kid, we used to let me say kid. I'm not encouraging this. We used to inject oranges with vodka. So you get a oh, syringe. You just inject the orange. 
and then you go. People go, why have you got a bag of 24 oranges? I said, look. <laughs> why have you got a slab thinking, of oranges? <laughs> I've got scurvy would be my response. <laughs> so anyway, it's they are combined. They, they are have combined. A history. This is a, a story that I heard about a long time ago, but I have had several people since we've started this podcast write to us and say, can you do Clevelandian's famous beer night? Okay. This is the request. I've You've given like me Tens headlines. of people have come and said, hey, do this one. It's a lot of fun. And it occurred back, we're talking the 4th of June, 1974. Mm-hmm. And it was in the Cleveland Indians hosted the Texas Rangers. And it should have been a routine night of baseball, you'd sure. think. But to understand this before we get into it, <laughs> so the promotion was there was going to be cheap beer at this night. As a way of getting the punters in. Punders Crowds in, were yeah. down and get a bit of atmosphere. Yeah. But to understand why this goes, and we'll explain how it goes completely off the rails, <laughs> I think we need to go back a bit and just get a, a sense of Cleveland the city. Please, paint the picture for so, us. So to understand the psyche of the Cleveland sports fan <laughs> in the 70s. Cleveland's it's in the state of Ohio. Have you ever been to Cleveland? Have not. It's not like the destination city of... When I think of Cleveland, I think of... Hello, Cleveland! And the Cleveland Browns is the name of the... Browns. And it's the home for rock and roll, the rock and roll... Yeah, the Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. So it's on the southern shore of Lake Erie. It's one of the big great lakes in North America. It's right across the border from Canada. So that's that maritime yeah. border they have, these huge things. Sorry, it was Spinal Tap I was doing then. This. You didn't react, so... I no, I knew you, you meant... We should have said for the listeners... <laughs> I still, the Stonehenge scene in Spinal Tap it's, it's, it's still just, makes me cry with laughter. Absolutely outrageous. I can still remember the first time I saw it. It was just. Pull it if out. You haven't if you, haven't, seen watched, it, if you yeah. haven't seen it or you haven't watched it recently. <laughs> oh, God. So during the US Civil War, this is the 1861 to 1865 US Civil War, not the one we're in now. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same one. It's it a, never yeah, ended. Yeah, if you know that's what I mean. right. Cleveland suddenly turns into this major industrial centre almost overnight because there's okay. obviously so much stuff being made and manufactured in the north for the war effort. So blue collar. Tan. Yeah, blue collar, all these sort of things. And it's in the middle of all these railway lines. It's on this lake with access to all these other towns and places on the Great Lakes. So mm-hmm. It's easily get around. Uh, the Cuyahoga River there is is a key waterway and so they used to move everything on water back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so it explodes in the late 19th century in size massively. All these companies like the American Shipbuilding Company, Sherman Williams Paint Company, Republic Steel and Standard Oil, these big big companies, they all set up along the river and the lake and the population's huge because there's all this work there. So Cleveland is this booming, booming city. By the 1920s, Cleveland overtakes St. Louis as the fifth largest city in the U.S. and it was closing in on Detroit, which was the The, fastest growing and the biggest. And it was only behind Detroit in automobile industry. Yes. So you wouldn't think of it now, but it was this huge automobile. So it was this thriving industrial metropolis. Detroit used to, they used to love a drink too. Did yeah. you ever know that saying? They always said, if you're buying a car, don't buy a Monday car or a Friday car. Oh, that's been on the, built on those days. Well, that have been built on those days. <laughs> Because there'd be massive people not showing up, either taking an early weekend or or, or hung over on the, and on just the Monday. And not, not doing it. And insiders and everyone always knew that that's a lemon. That's fantastic. <laughs> just getting a taste for it. <laughs> so anyway, with this rocketing population, huge economic growth going so well, yes. they get all excited, the people of Cleveland, and the powers that be that run the city think, you know what we really need? We need a state-of-the-art, multi-purpose stadium. 
for football okay. and baseball. We, we Makes sense. It. This is in the 1920s. For baseball and, and football. For, for the Browns. Yeah. That so, is well. Well, they're game. looking for all every sport. So they wanted this big, huge thing. And Lake, uh, Who's and, come up with Cleveland Browns? Well, the owner's name was Brown, but oh, it's, it's, never, it's never, if you don't know the yeah, reason. If the owner's name was Fritzel, I don't think you would call it <laughs> the Cleveland Fritzels either. I, uh, Brown is just... Fritzel's just not a name you could. It's like Adolf. It's one of those names that's consigned <laughs> to the bin of history, isn't it? Yeah. It's, there's just a few. What'd you name your baby? Uh, I don't think you No, don't worry. I reckon there's a lot of surnames that got The Browns changed. is the worst name for any sporting franchise. I think it's right up there, yeah. Ever, like of all the colours, like the Cincinnati Reds and all that, the Carlton Blues, you know, that makes sense. But of all the colours you're going to pick. <laughs> If you can come up with a worse <laughs> franchise name than Browns, let us know. So they decided they need this big stadium and they want it to be the largest stadium in the United States. So they mm. on the shores of Lake Erie, the lake there, they say we're going to have 74,000 people with the possibility of changing some of the seating mm. to 90,000. And the price tag for this at the time, which is in the 1920s, is like $2.5 million. So this is like yep. a billion-dollar stadium. Sure. Now, huge. But they're thinking, what can go wrong? You know, mm. booming town, huge population. We could build it ourselves with our own hands. <laughs> yeah, That's what we do. We do. We build this. So the Cleveland City Council vote for the proposal to be on a public ballot in 1928. So for people to think, only one councilman, F.W. Walls, argued against the proposal saying that the stadium would never pay for itself, would cost more than anticipated and would be a luxury. He pointed out the stadium. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> the reaction. He pointed out the stadium would only continue the trend of the city's debt moving from twenty-four million to one hundred and thirty-eight million in recent years. He said this is just going to be terrible. But Cleveland's been booming for decades. Everyone goes, "We'll be right. We'll be right." So, despite all of this, in November twenty-eight, the stadium gets up. It gets voted to build. By the time it opens in nineteen thirty-one. The Great Depression. Oh, timing, fellas. Timing, fellas. So you go no. from that into the, the, the Great Depression, the 30s, oh. into the World War. So this halts, <laughs> the Great Depression just halts Cleveland's boom. So by the time it opens, Cleveland Municipal Stadium, as it becomes known, it's already deeply unpopular with the public who voted for it, but now are like, this is an albatross no, around no, our necks. Yeah. This is terrible. It cost a lot more. And it's incredibly bad. To get the size, they've built it on the cheap. So the seats are rubbish. The you know the wood's terrible. The Ooh, finish is okay. it's a horrible, horrible stadium. Like there's nothing fun about it. So Waltz has been right all along, and it also just becomes a huge drain on the city. Like a big leech sitting on <laughs> yeah, top just, of just taking money away. In 1943, Franklin Lewis wrote in the Cleveland Press that the stadium stands as a horrible and costly example of political bungling or maybe outright thievery. He wrote that it was decaying and unbelievably filthy and was hated by every Clevelander who ever went down there. <laughs> okay. It's not a glowing review. <laughs> yeah. By 1948, it turns a $2 profit. That's its first yes! time. <laughs> He's laughing now. It gets named the mistake on the lake because it's on the shores <laughs> of Lake Erie. This what it becomes known as. Okay. Any chance of this stadium and the city turning around is wrecked in the 60s because from 964 to 974, in that 10 years, 600 factories and industrial operations leave Cleveland. So Cleveland lose a quarter of their manufacturing jobs almost, you know, in a decade and okay. people just flee the city. So you've yeah. got this huge stadium built for this prosperous city and no one's there. Yeah. And it suddenly looks like that they're going to go bankrupt. 
And the only thing lacking as we get into the end of the 60s for Cleveland, you've got this mistake by the lake. Yeah. You've got jobs, no money as we enter yeah. the 70s building up to this night. The only thing they lack is really a symbol of, you know, the stadium sort of a symbol of their fall. but they're Not locking. a positive one. Luckily, they get a symbol of the decline of the city when mm. the uh, Cuyahoga River catches on fire. <laughs> now, Mick, you might be saying to me, <laughs> you might be saying uh, a river catching on fire seems odd. Well, I not if you're, <laughs> I don't know, in hell. Because <laughs> of all this boom over the previous century. Yeah. The Cuyahoga River, which runs into Lake Erie, it's been just used as a dumping ground. Like get rid of everything. Get rid of all the industrial sewerage and industrial waste, everything into the river. There's no there's no environmental act or anything, right? In the 1880s, a Czech immigrant arrived in Cleveland. He said the water was yellowish, thick, full of clay, stinking of oil and sewerage. Piles of rotten wood were heaped on either bank of the river and it was all dirty and neglected. I was disappointed by this view of an American river. That was this Czech immigrant said. Fishing wasn't great. The fishing, fishing I don't think it was like. Great. America's rivers were so polluted yeah. back then because it was all just economic growth was the only focus. Rivers caught fire in Baltimore, Buffalo, New York, Detroit, and Philadelphia. Jeez. So rather than this being a one-off, yeah, this happened a lot. Cleveland, though, was such an industrial center for so long. And they were so just economic folks. It was the world champion of aquatic flammability. <laughs> Is something a state going, symbol? <laughs> it was just it's, a river, a river on, on fire. fire. These are the years that yeah. the river caught fire. 1868, 1883, 1887, 1912, 1922, 1936, 1941, 1948, 1952. They all had major fires. There were so many little fires oh, that people just cute. didn't even report them. They didn't even get right down. And I bet you in those other years, they were damn close to ignition too. Oh, so yeah. It's, heat it's not like the they, were, they were good years. Yeah. It wasn't like it was crystal clear. In fact, often when they caught fire, it wouldn't make the paper the next day. <laughs> the deadliest was in 1912. Five people died. The New York Times covered the 1883 fire where a dozen oil tanks exploded and 100,000 barrels went up in flames. And they only wrote, this is disappointing because the economic loss is $250,000. <laughs> in 1952, we had the biggest one. This was a two-inch thick oil slick caught fire. It resulted in $1.5 million worth of damage to numerous boats and even an office building on the riverbank. And still the local paper just wrote one sentence, they're all slick menaces bound to affect fire insurance rates. This would be an economic loss. So they just <laughs> didn't care about the June 22nd, 1969. It yeah. was the last time the, the Cuyahoga River catches fire. A train's crossing a bridge above the river and it sends sparks down onto the river. And yeah. they landed on this oily debris, which is trapped beneath these wooden trestles under the bridge. Oh, no. The fire goes five stories high <laughs> and results in $50,000 worth of damage to the railroad infrastructure. It only burnt for 30 minutes and a fire boat shows up and some fire trucks and they got it put it out so quickly no one even got a photo of it. It was such a lack of thing that the Cleveland Plains dealer newspaper they had just six short paragraphs on it buried in the paper no photo like no one even cared right well you know you're getting used to it when a fireboat just rolls up like <laughs> yeah, yeah get out like, the, the fire yeah. tracks i understand yeah like, you better get the fireboats time magazine though features an article on this fire mm. so even though clevelanders don't go this environmental movement that's building it, they do an article on how the rivers keep catching fire and they point out cleveland's the worst 
And this becomes a national thing, which leads to the formation of the EPA. Is that right? Yeah. So the Environment Protection Agency in the US. So this was sort of the symbol of why we need to start caring about the environment. Yeah. But what it does is it makes Cleveland, again, after all this, everyone's leaving, all the jobs are closing, they've got this hopeless stadium and their rivers are catching fire. <laughs> they become a punchline for the worst city the, in America because it's on the front of time. Uh, an environmental protection agency gets set up because <laughs> how bad Cleveland is. And people start to say the mistake by the lake, not just for the stadium, but all of Cleveland. All of Cleveland. Like this is the thing. Wow. By 1974 comes around. That's the background of how Cleveland is. Cleveland's on the canvas twitching. It is about to be counted out. There is no civic pride, right? (laughs) There is no civic pride whatsoever. Their baseball team, the Indians, which are now called the Guardians, but we'll use the Indians because that's all they called at the time, Mm. which was obviously has been changed because of its racist connotations. But they mirrored the city in that they were in a 30-year slump in 1974. They played out of this terrible stadium, which we know about, which 75,000 people, they'd get 8,000 people show up on a good day. That's terrible. So you know what that's like. Adding fun, during certain months at municipal stadiums, swarms of insects would fill the stadium from the wind on the lake that you can (laughs) barely open your mouth without bugs Uh, flying in. Everyone's sitting there in mosquito nets. Yeah, and due to the pollution in the river and the lake, it smelled like something had died. (laughs) So, so no so one's. It's not a great day out. It's not a great day out. So the situation is so bad that on the 13th of May 1974, just before this all kicks off, just 4,234 spectators show up for a night game against the Boston Red Sox in this huge stadium. All right, this is trouble. So the Indians travel to Texas. So they go to Texas first on the 29th of May, and fan interest is about as low as, as you seven. could get. Cleveland are hopeless, and the Texas Rangers fans, it's at the Texas Rangers Stadium this first game, they're not even interested. Their own team wasn't good. Yet their stadium was full of the normal because it turns out there was a promotion involving 10-cent beers. I beg your pardon. 10-cent beers. So the crowd shows up for this game a bit more in Texas and as a result, the crowd's a bit more rowdy because you can get a 10-cent beer. 10-cent beer. In the fourth inning during a play, a Texas base runner, Lenny Randall, slides into a Cleveland player and it sort of kicks off the tension. So a bit later, one of the pitchers decides to throw the ball while Randall's batting at his head. He misses, but Randall and that then get into it. He bunts and the fielder and him get into a bit of a elbow. A bit of niggle here. It's on. Standing on first base, the Indians, John Ellis decides this is enough and punches Randall, which leads to a bench-clearing brawl. I've said it before, the best brawls in sport. When they clear the benches, yeah. it goes. Yeah, and they in the 70s, they threw punches. Yeah. It wasn't like now where they all sort of, hold me back, hold me back. They're right. all holding each Why other order? Yeah. The crowd who's had 10 cent beers all night, they're like, <laughs> they're <laughs> this like, is a perfect storm. <laughs> this is yeah. 10 cent beers. Um, so, to give you a sense of this, the crowd, um, Tom Grieve is the Rangers outfield. So, we didn't draw many fans back then. But at the end of the game, in the right field seats, there was at least a thousand University of Texas kids just drinking 10 cent beers cool. and furious. As oh, the no. players returned the dugout, the overly lubricated fans throw beer and food at the Cleveland players. One fan leads over the edge of the dugout and tips a beer over the catcher's Dave Duncan's head. <laughs> That's 10 cents worth. That's right yeah, there. Yeah, it's cheap, so I can waste it. One of the players had to, Indian players had to be restrained from entering the stand to fight the fans. <laughs> <laughs> the game ends, it's a three-win win to the Rangers, but the bad blood doesn't. Rangers manager at the time was a guy called Billy Martin, 
who we spoke about who George Steinbrenner sacked about seven times. Oh, that's right. Billy Martin was known for picking fights as a player and a manager. Good on Alcoholic, him. life a mess, always fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave the um, post-game media conference and he was asked if he was worried about the fans in Cleveland because in six days' time, the Rangers have to travel to Cleveland. Yeah. And he says he worried about the fans in Cleveland and he says, Billy Martin, a manager of the Rangers of Texas, says they don't have enough fans there to worry about. <laughs> right? So this is sort of accurate because they, okay. uh, they're getting no one show up for games, but it pours fuel on the fire. And Absolutely. Suddenly the so Cle- throwing a hand grenade into yeah, the room. Some of the Cleveland sports media start going, well, we've got to get into this. We've just had a bench-clearing brawl. Their fans have thrown beer and food at our players. Ten-cent beers. And now Billy Martin saying, we, you fans won't show up, so I don't have to worry it's about It's a line in the sand yeah. moment yeah. for Cleveland. For the town, right? For the After town. everything's for been everything. happening. We're not copping it. Yeah. The Cleveland Plain Dealer, which is the newspaper, featured a cartoon featuring the club's mascot, Chief Wahoo, holding a <laughs> pair of boxing gloves stating, be ready for anything. So the media <laughs> in Cleveland are not like going, let's, let's just calm settle down. down, guys. Let's just... Pete Franklin is one of the first sports shock jocks on radio in the US, but he's in Cleveland. He spends the next six days leading up to this rematch Fine. in Cleveland calling for vengeance on the Rangers for the brawl and the way the Texas fans had treated Cleveland players. So it's a tinderbox. It's good to as go. This game I comes. love this. See, I would have gone to this game, by the yeah, way. That's that, right. You've Everyone's, got me. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm heading in. Well, there's more. In the lead up to June 4 game against the Rangers, the team president of Cleveland, Ted Bonder, he calls a meeting not to discuss the brawl. He wasn't worried about that at all, but how to turn around the team's woeful attendance, which is meetings he regularly <laughs> has, right? So he's saying, how do we get people to show up to this stadium? And, <laughs> He's not thinking that even with the sprawl that people are really going to show up in any manner. 10-cent beers would help. One idea quickly gets momentum. (laughs) Why not do what the Rangers did at their game and have a promotion offering 10-cent beers? (laughs) Here we go again. In 1974, beer at the stadium normally cost 65 cents a beer. So 10 cents was a real incentive to get down there. Six beers. You're out in front. Yeah, you're out in front. The night was to be promoted as Beer Night. It often gets called 10 Cent Beer Night, but it was beer just called night. Beer Night, which just shows the 70s sort of casual <laughs> attitude. If you see a pub yeah. in, in Australia, anyway, that was built in the 70s, it's usually accompanied by a car park for 500 cars. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So you yeah. go, you drive oh, okay, yeah, yeah. it was okay to drive yeah. to and from said pub. That's a night out. Well, there was also no responsible serving of alcohol. Like it was no, just you were... served it until the... Like the person passed out, sensed that they might need a rest. That was sort <laughs> of a spell. Thing. So, what do we got? 10 so it's cent usually beer. 65 cents for a beer. So, it becomes 10 cents for it for the mm. night. And the night's going to be promoted as beer night. Christopher Meyer, an Indians fan, described how things were different in those years. They were just happy to sell you a ticket, any way to get you in. You could come in there with half a liquor store on your back and they wouldn't have cared. Fantastic. So, he's saying they wouldn't have cared anyway. And this is the same fan, Christopher Meyer. He describes one memorable experience, not at this game, but earlier. He says, I remember going to another game, Dennis Eckersley's no-hitter. Dennis Eckersley was a great pitcher. Mm -hmm. And we sat in box seats, upper deck, between home and third. We got a cooler full of pina coladas. (laughs) One of those yellow igloo cylindrical coolers you find at construction sites. Those five-gallon type things. (laughs) 
He said, so we filled it all up with the ingredients for pina colada, five gallons Wonderful. of pina colada and ice before we went to the game. When we went down to the game with it, they were just happy to see us show up. They said, come on in, man. What's in there? Pina colada? Cool. Enjoy the game. <laughs> we sat there for the whole no-hitter and the cooler had its own seat. <laughs> so this is what it's like, Fair right? Chest. This is what it's like. If it was a, if you could time travel, this oh, is where man. I'd be going, right? Totally, totally. So cheap beer nights were also not uncommon in Major League Baseball. The Milwaukee Brewers, unsurprisingly, <laughs> they were quite fond of them and they mainly went off without a hitch. Yeah. So they weren't a problem. Um, but there were some examples, counterintuitively, of course, that suggest that getting everyone drunk could cause problems. Yeah. On the 18th of May 1971, just three years before this, Milwaukee held its first ever 10-cent beer night, resulting in 27 thousand plus fans showing up carrying more coins than a pokey venue <laughs> so, so some of the fans focus on getting drunk as humanly possible one man ordered 130 beers and his group finished them by the sixth innings four youths still had 24 cups left when the game ended and were last seen finishing them off fantastic <laughs> um the milwaukee journal reported that predictably fights broke out in all sections of the park usually matching police against an overenthusiastic and slightly polluted rooter. Rooter being fan in yeah, America. Yeah. It was usually a one-sided contest. So people would, you know, do all these kind of things. But most of the time it was not a huge problem. There'd be a few arrests. But what Milwaukee did is they set up a temporary court at the game so yeah. the police could arrest you, charge you, deal with it at the stadium in the court yeah. and then let you go. <laughs> oh, again, that's another tip-off. A temporary courtroom yeah, somewhere in the that, that, you, know, you mightn't have thought your idea through. They had that in, in Edinburgh. So I went to Edinburgh and Glasgow and the pubs you would stay away from were the pubs that had a temporary police station <laughs> set out out the front. I swear, I went down Leith one day, which I believe now is quite an affluent area, but this yeah. in the old days, the Leith Walk was pretty dangerous. Yeah. And there was a pub, it was called Checkers. And I go, well, that looks nice. And then as I walked in, I walked straight out and the temporary police station directly outside it should have been a tip-off. Yeah, yeah, Don't yeah. go in there. Yeah, yeah. A temporary police station <laughs> is not a good sign. When you need a permanent police presence that they're building infrastructure. Despite some of Milwaukee's slight problems, Cleveland was keen to offer, so these are eight-ounce Stroh beer, 10 cents a pop, so okay. it's quite a bit. To show a fair bit of responsibility, they limited purchases to six beers. At right? a time or overnight? Oh, it's good you bring that up. That's per purchase. <laughs> there was no limit overall. <laughs> what happened to two cans per man, per day, perhaps? So this is like, this is, we'll limit it to six. Six at a time. Six at a time. But you can have as many as you want over Don't be greedy. Moment, right? Like, yeah. This all got presented as a thing. Now, the beer was only 3.2% alcohol, mm. so that was a bit of a slow, like it wasn't full strength. In way, Disappointing. Given you could have as much as you wanted because it's 10 cents. On the other hand. It's not as big a slower <laughs> down as they thought, right? This gets presented as an idea and decisions made by the team president and everyone, mm. let's do this. Yeah. This is a great idea. But, of course, it's setting up this night where everyone wants to get revenge on the Rangers sure. to be this perfect storm, right? You're creating nasty drunks. Yeah, yeah, Not happy yeah, drunks. Yeah. You're creating... Yeah. So you're getting all these people showing up wanting vengeance oh, yeah. on the Texas Rangers. It's like a starting spot. So the idea was quickly met with enthusiasm. The Cleveland Press beat writer Jim Braham wrote, rinse your stein and get in line. 
Billy, I like the, it. Billy the kid and his Texas gang are in town and it's 10 cent beer night at the ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get ready to rumble. So that's the I thing. love it. What's amazing here is that the head office of the Indians have a complete, in the build-up, lack of concern about the night. It right. doesn't occur to them that this could go pear-shaped. Yeah. The warning signs were there, like the brawl, the press hyping everything but up. they're happy that people are going to come. They're right? just happy. They think there's like, a level of interest think, we haven't seen for a while. Yeah, but instead you've got the brawl, the press hyping revenge, a city that's been on its knees yeah. like for a long time is a punchline to the rest of the country. Yeah. The temperature that night's 28 degrees at night. You know what that is? Beer drinking weather. It's a hot <laughs> night, right? Incredibly humid. Yeah. So you yeah. couldn't have had worse. And on top of that, it's a full moon. Oh. <laughs> you know what? I don't know what goes on, but there's something to it. If you ask yeah. anyone who works in a police force or in a hospital, uh, yeah, they say they will tell you it is a nutty night. Yeah, because uh, people can walk around easier. It's like bright and at is, night. Is that yeah, it? I think it is. It's people, 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 more do. people are out. I'm thinking we're all. What percentage of water are we? <laughs> the human Some body. Huge it's amount. Like like 90, 80, 89 percent. And then you've got a full moon, which affects tides. <laughs> <laughs> this is my theory that somehow inside your body, it's going. It's, it's calling you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. calling the body. I, think, I don't know. I think that's hundred percent true. I think I think any scientist would agree. <laughs> it's in my TED talk. So uh, it's twenty eight degrees, humid at night, and a full moon. And of course, the fans are allowed in two hours before the game starts. Uh, that so they give them a real run up to get, and they're serving drinks, right? Like so, two hour lead in before and before the and baseball's a long game, right? Yeah. So it's three to four hours, you know, depending on how fast it is. Many wow. turn up, they say, already well under the influence. <laughs> two hours beforehand, they're already yeah. gone. They show well under the influence of both alcohol and marijuana. The fans are just not leaving anything to chance, yeah, yeah. right? Um, as well as every other factor that's building up to this, the night coincided with college kids being back in town on break because it's college holidays, <laughs> meaning that instead of the normally small crowd of like 4,000 people, uh, over 25,000 people show up and almost all of them are there for the beer. Yeah. College kids mainly. Here we go. The attraction was simple. Tim Russett, who was a college student at the time, he went on to be a journalist for NBC. Yeah, I remember him for NBC. Tim, yeah. Yeah. He said, I went with $2 in my pocket. You do the math. <laughs> so this is the power of 10-cent beers, right? Yeah. Dan Coglin, who covered the Indians for the Plain Dealer newspaper, noticed the different makeup of the crowd on the night. He said there were a lot of strangers coming into the game that night, and the significance of that is back then the Indians usually drew about 7,000 people. And you knew all of them. Yeah. So tonight you don't know. A large crowd, the cheap alcohol, you'd expect that they'd organise like, you know, a bit of extra security. But Maybe this some was, food? Yeah. <laughs> this was beyond them. They didn't organise no, security. No, just the That's normal, an obvious one. Yeah, just the normal security is in place. 50, a temporary courtroom? <laughs> no, no, no. Caught with their pants down. There's 50 private security staff, no cops. Oh. For 25,000 oh, oh, oh. people. Even before the game starts, the atmosphere is tense. The Rangers manager, Billy Martin, who's already like an antagonistic <laughs> guy and has already said they don't have enough fans to show up, he said he wasn't worried about them. He decides to help the situation by standing outside the dugout and heckling the fans. <laughs> this is before the game. So he's not exactly going. He just enjoy. He loves aggro. So he's just winding them up. On top of all this, many fans have bought firecrackers. <laughs> <laughs> and begins setting them off before the game, filling the stadium with this lingering smoke. 
that just added to the sense this was an it's eerie. apocalyptic. Yeah, it's eerie night. Like, you know, you've got the yeah. – and there's footage online of all this and it's pretty amazing. Cleveland fan Andy Netzel said people were blowing off firecrackers in the bleachers. They weren't big, but they were big enough. Everyone was trying to steer clear of them, but then security just never got involved. <laughs> security was like yeah, – Security too. The problem with security, when you underdo it, yeah. so if it's not done, you might start with 50, but you're going to end with none. Because you, you just waved the white flag. Yeah, you know? yeah. What's the point? What's I remember going to see Black Flag once at uni. Oh, the band, yeah. The yeah. band, unbelievable. And a pretty rough crowd. And they had undershot security. And I just remember the guys on the door going, here, taking their ties off and walking away. They yeah, go, yeah. Not, not, you can't pay me enough money to be here tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And away it went and it was carnage. <laughs> it was. What a gig. So that's what you get. Yeah, if yeah. you don't. I know. And I think a lot of these guys are just old blokes who, you know, they're used to showing up and getting a paycheck because it's 4,000 fans in a 75,000 stadium. Probably reading a paper. Yeah, in a te- like hardcore baseball fans who are there, even though their team suck, you're not, and they're spread out too yeah, usually yeah. across a huge stadium. You're not really getting in this no. role. Suddenly they're looking up in the stadium and there's these firecrackers, marijuana no. and booze-filled college kids <laughs> all ready for a huge night. From the very early on, the demand for beer is obviously intense <laughs> um, and the stadium staff are struggling to do it because, you know, being able to buy six beers for 60 cents, then walk straight back up and buy another, another. six. It's all people lining up, handing the beers off to a friend or underage kids. As you do. And then lining straight back up again yeah. and just getting it again and again. One fan, Christopher Meyer, he said, when we got there, we saw that there were three or four temporary concession stands set up for cheap beer and they were mobbed, hundreds of people, not even a line or anything, just a mob A mob, surrounded. And you'd think... Just stop serving beer. Yeah, that can blow up in your face <laughs> so, yeah. too. Uh, yeah. Uh, again, I'm going to tell you a story. I was serving bar and the models were on. The band, the models. The band, yeah. the models. And at about half an hour to go into their gig, uh, I said to our boss, oh, we've run out of beer. He goes, I'll just turn it off. Just turn the taps off. And it's about six deep at the bar. Yeah. And in 20 minutes, we were sitting in the tap room <laughs> with kegs pushed up against the door. As it was taken <laughs> in, a, in a coup siege situation, so so shutting the bar does not always. It's not always work. Well, you'll be glad to know. Instead, they don't stop serving beer. I'm they maybe go a step further than you would have thought, though. Instead, the decision's made to just let fans fill up direct from the beer trucks <laughs> that are behind the outfield fences. That'll do it. <laughs> so there's these trucks full of beer for the night, and they go. Just go fill up there. Fill up there and feel free to drive it home (laughs) when you're done. So some temporary tables are quickly set up in front of the trucks, these beer trucks, and two young female teenagers are put in charge of doling out the beer. Well, this doesn't really go well because there's (laughs) this huge mob of blokes just going nuts. Any semblance of enforcing the six limit is gone. (laughs) Andy Netzel says that suddenly you could get any container filled up with beer, he said, I had a big dog and suds mug, maybe 32 ounces, which is just under a litre. Hats. He said, it looked like a mini keg. Anyone <laughs> who wanted beer got beer. Wow. So at this point, it's everyone's just doing this. Um, it's anarchy. Eventually, even this setup is deemed unsatisfactory for those <laughs> trying to get a beer. The tables are flipped over by the crowd. The two teenage girls who were serving just walk gone. away. Yeah. And the fans helped themselves directly to beer. Some drank directly from the industrial taps attached to the truck. 
Oh, this is fantastic. This is wild. This, this is, is beer sodden anarchy. Yeah. The game's Has started. it started? The game's about to start. God, that should diffuse things a bit. So the game starts. In the top of the second innings, the Rangers' Tom Greave hits a home run and someone, some in the crowd noticed it, but not many. This is overshadowed pretty quickly when a middle-aged woman who seemed more dressed for the theatre than the baseball runs onto the field and flashes her breasts to the highly receptive <laughs> crowd. She then proceeds to try and kiss the umpire crew chief Nesta Chilak, <laughs> who surprisingly wasn't in the mood for romance, so she's escorted off by security. You're out of here. So that's the first time... This event really sets off the crowd. They love it. They decide now's a great time to start throwing things onto the field okay. as she gets escorted off. They throw beer cups, full and empty, hot dogs, golf balls, batteries, <laughs> rocks, and anything else that was not tied down. The ground crew run around like headless chickens trying to keep the field clear. Yes. Only for the crowd to decide they make excellent targets. A public address announcement reminds fans not to throw things on the field, resulting in the fans instantly throwing more things on the field. <laughs> Was that announcement made with a slurring drunk yeah. rig announcer? It comes down for a sec. The next few innings proceed relatively quietly. The Rangers score another run in the third. To the, There's still firecrackers going yeah, all yeah, around. Sure. The fourth inning begins with the Rangers' Tom Greave hitting his second home run of the night. This time as he rounded the bases... A naked fan ran onto the field and slid into second base <laughs> as if he was the base runner. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Given the base parts are made of sand, silt, and clay, this would have hurt. Oh, yeah. Nude sliding He's on that. taken one for the team. <laughs> um, so I wouldn't do it. The man managed to then run off, avoid security, and get back in the stands. <laughs> so security are not... Covering the he should, he should be signed up. It's like you know, it's like that baseball dream. You know, the kid in the outfield. How catch, did you get catches, discovered? I, I caught the ball. Oh, I was drunk one night. I, I the ran on the base second runner. base nude. I just see him steal a base. Imagine if he was out there long enough. I know, but he, I just love how he's nude and he jumps back into the crowd. I just love him. Does he get his clothes back? Like what happens? You know. Uh. In the bottom of the fourth, Indians batter Leron Lee hit the ball straight back at the Rangers pitcher Fergie Jenkins, hitting him in the stomach. As Jenkins rolls around in pain on the ground, the crowd starts chanting, "Hit him again! Hit him again! Harder! Harder!" <laughs> so the crowd's loose, right? This is great. That's the most interest the fans have actually showed Show, in the game. Oh yeah, we've that. got them back. Yeah. The crowds are back and they're into it. They're into it. What more could you It's worked. Mm. Jenkins remains in the game, but he gives up quite a few hits to the Indians. They score a run. And at one stage of the inning, a close call sees Billy Martin, the Rangers manager, oh, come out to argue with the umpire. The Indians fan, in revenge for the six days earlier, pelt him with beers as he walks back to the dugout. <laughs> Anyone else would like, not be happy with this. Yeah. Instead, Billy Martin being Billy Martin and always wanting to try and calm things down, he stands outside the dugout, lets them throw things at him and blows kisses at the crowd. <laughs> he's sober. Yeah, he's well. I don't think well. he's going to feed. As the fifth inning starts and there's, you could just smell apparently marijuana smoke mixing okay. with firecracker smoke. Firecrackers. It's a <laughs> like magical this, light. And the beer's continuing to be served sure. to anyone who wants it. A father and son, mm. in a bonding moment, jump the fence and moon the crowd <laughs> and the Rangers fielders and they receive a huge, like, standing ovation from the crowd. That is good parenting. <laughs> That's <laughs> a lifelong memory you'll have with your dad at sports. Yeah. Brilliant. This 
opens the floodgates. <laughs> more and more people start jumping the fence to streak across the field in various stages of undress. The Cleveland Indians director of sales and marketing, Carl Fazio, said security that was starting to lose control. <laughs> He said, the policemen are overweight elderly guys, he means security, are overweight elderly guys who's got belts on with billy clubs and walkie-talkies and guns. They have to put their hands on their side to hold all of this stuff so they can run after these kids. And here are these 19-year-old kids cutting on a dime and these older guys with all this equipment trying to keep up with them. And the crowd started laughing at the policemen. <laughs> he said, that was a bad sign right there. Stadium management organised for the Indians radio commentator Herb Score to beg the fans not to run onto the field over the public announce system, which it worked about as well as uh, telling them not imagine. to throw stuff. Meanwhile, any fans who decided streaking and throwing things wasn't for them, the fans that were saying, I won't streak or throw things, they just start ripping up the padding off the left field wall and trying to drag it into the stands. And the ground, <laughs> and the ground crew give up trying to pick everything that's been thrown on the ground and enter a pitch battle to save the padding, a battle that lasts for the rest of the game. So it's like a tug of war out on it. It's already a shithole. Yeah. And now <laughs> they're, they're trying, to rip it apart. trying to rip it apart. In the bottom of the fifth inning, Mike Hargrove. We're only in the fifth, though. We're only in the fifth. Uh, Mike Hargrove came on for the Rangers to play first base. He was greeted by a hail of beer cups, spit and hot dogs. Later he said, I bet I had five or ten pounds of hot dogs thrown at me at first base. Um, he said, in a sign that things were starting to move from silly to dangerous, he said he also had a gallon jug of the fortified wine Thunderbird thrown at him. <laughs> okay, things are getting here. <laughs> so things are starting to get. He's got a helmet on, isn't he? Yeah. By the sixth inning, it's not even safe in the bullpen. That's where the relief pitchers lay <laughs> yes. up. As Indian fans started pelting the Rangers pitchers who were warming up with firecrackers, <laughs> so they have to move. Um, the head umpire, Nestor Chilak, calls for the bullpens to be evacuated, but he doesn't stop the game, okay. which is probably a mistake. Instead, he lets the pitchers warm up on the mound, which actually further slows down the game sure. because instead of them coming on warmed up, they yeah. come on, have to warm up, and they stop the game while they warm yeah. up. Yeah, well, that's a good time to maybe, I don't know, go and get a drink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The fans are becoming even more daring. One threw a tennis ball onto the field, hopped the field and retrieved it, threw it back into the stands and then led security on a merry chase, even stopping to hug another fan who jumped down to join him <laughs> and then gets away. Fantastic. So this is the... Um, it means that by the seventh inning, families that are there not for the beer who actually came for the baseball, they're leaving in droves. They're yeah. just like streaming out. In the eighth inning... Radio announcers Joe Tate and Herb Score noticed Indians executives were also leaving the stadiums. <laughs> Acting casually, they said like nothing was wrong, yeah. but it was clear to them that the club had lost complete control <laughs> of the crowd. In the actual game, the Indians, and the game's still going, yes. they're making things interesting, but they start rallying and they score two runs and they tie the game at five runs. So suddenly so, well, now that'll the game could go longer. <laughs> <laughs> like it looks like suddenly the winning runs on second base. And it meant that it's going to go longer, which is not what they want. No. Carl Fazio from the Cloven Indians says, we were just trying to keep a lid on everything, hoping the game would be over and get out of there before something bad happened. But at this point, something bad does happen. A 19-year-old by the name of Terry Yerkick, he decides it would be a great idea to jump the fence and steal a hat off the Rangers outfielder, Jeff Burrows, as a <laughs> souvenir for the night. Okay. So he says years later, he says, looking back at the incident, he says, I came running up behind him and he never saw me coming. 
I grabbed the hat right off the top of his head. I had it in my hands, but I dropped it. It landed right by his foot. He didn't say a word. Our eyes met. I looked at him and he looked at me. He kicked me right in the thigh. I had perfect spike marks in my thigh. He said, I wasn't going to bend down to get the hat. I was in retreat mode. I wasn't trying to hurt him. I was just trying to get a souvenir. I ran back to the home run fence and hopped back over to rejoin the crowd. But the Rangers in the dugout who were watching this, they were seated down low. And so they couldn't make out properly what had happened. To them, it looked like the Burroughs, their teammates, being assaulted by a fan. So they're like, what's going on? And they look like there's trouble. And Burroughs trips over trying to get that, pick up the hat. Yes. But they don't know that. They think the fans knocked him down. Ah. Sports photographer who's near the Rangers players and near the bench recounts, that's when Billy Martin grabs a bat. He says, I'll always remember this. He grabbed a bat and said, let's get them, boys. (laughs) So suddenly the Rangers run out onto the field baseball bats in hand to save who they their teammate who they think's just been attacked by a fan. This sight of them running yes. out there results in hundreds of fans running onto the field to try and save Yerkik, who's the yeah. fan that's trying yes. to get off the ground. But he'd already jumped into He's the stand. But there. suddenly there's hundreds of things. So the photographer says, the Rangers started going after that guy and before you knew it, there were thousands of fans all over the field. He said, I was scared. The only thing I can compare it to was when I was covering riots in Venezuela and there were guys with Uzis <laughs> running around. <laughs> Another photographer, Paul Tepley, was on the field and said, when Burroughs had his hat taken off, they, meaning the fans, proceeded to march towards right field. I followed that and at one point I was maybe 30 yards away from the right field stands and I heard this clatter as I was walking. Someone had thrown a folding chair out of the middle upper deck it landed six feet right next to me. Wow. When the Rangers all carrying bats get to Burroughs out in the outfield, they find him unharmed and they're relieved, but then they suddenly realise they're surrounded by angry Cleveland Indian fans and they start having to fight them off with baseball yeah. bats. Billy Nutmartin says he noticed some of the fans around them were now holding chains, knives, and clubs fashioned from pieces of stadium oh seats. Oh, my God. He said suddenly, like, the naked antics of early, like, were like a distant fond memory. It was a bit of fun. Yeah, a bit of fun. A bit of, a bit of horseplay. Um, the crowd's now surrounding the Rangers and the umpires too, and fists are flying. Um, in the Cleveland dugout, Indians manager Ken Aspromonte, he's watching the unfolding violence in absolute horror and he decides things are on the verge of tragedy. Yes. So he leads his players out, also wielding their bats, to rescue the Texas Rangers. So on. Um, so these teams have been brawling with each other six days yeah. before, a suddenly and now aligned, <laughs> aligned of like easy fighting to save each other against um, the Plain Dealers city editor, David Hopcraft, who was watching from the stands, ran for the payphone, this is before mobile phones, <laughs> yes. to call the newspaper for more journalists to cover the riot. <laughs> He's like, quick, you quick. need to get out of here. It's now a complete brawl. You've got 50-odd players and the umpires armed with baseball bats fighting hundreds of fans. Hundreds of fans on the ground. Um, the, and most of them naked. Yeah, the, the spectators <laughs> still in the stands decide to help out by tearing up the metal seats and lobbing them into the fray. Now, I was waiting when that was going to happen. Yeah. I thought those seats, those uncomfortable seats, yeah, had they're, they're, been getting away with it for too long. Uh, one of them hits Indians relief pitcher Tom uh, Hilgendorf right in the head. The radio announcers, Joe Tate and Herb Score, called the riot for those listening at home. So this is over the radio. <laughs> Tate says, Tom Hilgengorf has been hit on the head. Hilgie is in definite pain. He's bent over holding his head. 
Oh, this is an absolute tragedy. Absolute tragedy. I've been in this business for over 20 years and I've never seen anything as disgusting as this. Tate says, and I'll be perfectly honest with you, I just don't know what to say. Score says, I don't think this game will continue, Joe. The unbelievable thing is people keep jumping out of the stands after that they see what's going on. And Tate says, well, that just shows the complete lack of brain power on the parts of some people. There's no way I'm going to run out onto the field if I see some baseball player waving a bat out there looking for somebody. (laughs) This is tragic. The whole thing has degenerated now into just, now we've got another fight going on with fans and ball guys. Hargrove has got some kid on the ground and he's really administering a beating. And the score says, well, that fellow came up and hit him from behind is what happened. And Tate says, boy, Hargrove really wants a piece of him and I don't blame him. And then score says, look at Duke Sims, who's from the Rangers down there going at it. And Tate says, yeah, Duke is in on it. Here we go again. So this is the radio. radio. On top of all this, the umpire in charge, Nesta Kylak, he's been hit in the head with a chair in this thing. (laughs) And that might have been enough for him to call off the game, but then a hunting knife lands in the ground behind his leg, sticking up out of the ground in this ominous manner. And Nesta thinks that's enough. He says, we forfeit the game. The Rangers have won. Eventually, the two teams manage to force their way back to the dugout (laughs) with some of the players sort of fighting a rearguard action to cover the retreat. (laughs) Like it's a... (laughs) Game of Thrones, like... Both sets of players enter the dugout Fans throw gravel at them, but the players made it to the safety of the tunnels beneath the stadium. So all the Cleveland, Texas, it's baseball players nice. versus yeah. the crowd now. With the players now gone and locked down in the bowels of the stadium, the fans begin ripping up anything on the field that's not tied down. Bizarrely, the stadium's <laughs> organist decided to play Take Me Out to the Ballpark <laughs> in, in a vain attempt to use the music to soothe the mob. This is America's game, isn't it? Yeah, isn't this yeah. there? So there's this riot going on. Smash, Everyone's ripping and yeah, smashing and his, the organist is playing. Tate, who's on radio still, says, the security people here are just totally incapable of handling this crowd. They just, well, short of the National Guard, I'm not sure what would handle this crowd right now. They then announce on radio, the bases are gone. And Score says, they've stolen the bases. <laughs> so they're gone. Terry Yurkic, who had kicked everything off by attempting to steal Burroughs' hats, he's still in the stadium. He said the players disappeared. They must have gone into their clubhouse. All over the stadium, so many people were drunk. Somebody threw second base into the stands. He said it didn't seem dangerous to me at the time, but he said people were on the field for a long time. They announced the game was being forfeited and it got even crazier, so they suddenly announced that. Stadium management decide that the organist playing take me out to the ballpark is not working, so they turn (laughs) off the lights. And by this point, the Cleveland Police Department's arriving in force. Right, they're on their Right, gear, everything. They arrest nine people, um, seven people are hospitalised, but they mainly just drive them off. If someone finds the bat Billy Martin had taken onto the field and it's broken in half. In the clubhouse afterwards, reporters start chatting to the main players. Billy Martin thanks the Cleveland players for coming to the rescue. He says, I can't say enough for the Cleveland players. If they hadn't been for them, we were in real trouble because our butt was against the wall out there. He said, as it was, we got hit with everything you can think of. They were throwing chairs out of the upper deck, then picking them up and swinging them. We also got hit with rocks, bottles, golf balls, and everything (laughs) else you could name. He said, that was the closest you're ever going to get to seeing someone getting killed in a game of baseball. So he's sort of all fired up. He loves it. Burroughs is a bit 
calmer about it. He yeah. he asked one reporter whether the forefoot would erase the horror of the night because he had a terrible night at the plate batting. He goes, will that write my stats? <laughs> That's all he calls in, clears about. Yeah. Nestor Chilak, the home play umpire, he's got blood running down his face <laughs> from when he was hit by a metal chair and he calls these people animals. He said, That's all these people are. Yeah. He said, I even saw a couple of knives out there in that mob. They wanted to kill somebody. I personally got hit with a chair and a rock and look at this. And he holds up his hand that's got a huge cut. So he's yeah. really, you know, not in not good camper. He said, They were the animals in control. So he's going nuts. Some of them are just sort of sitting there in an absolute day. So this is all happening. For one guy by the name of Dan Coglin, who's the plain dealer, sports reporter, he said the knife was particularly rough. He said, I had a few beers and was leaving the stadium and this is after it's all calmed yeah. down a fair bit. He said, I had my reporter's notebook with me. He said, a dozen high school kids were standing on top of the Rangers dugout yelling for them to come out and fight. I asked them what they thought they were doing. I told them that the Rangers weren't even in the stadium anymore. That's when a kid came out of the crowd and socked me. <laughs> he said, it didn't phase me. I could take a punch back then. That's when I decided to get out of there. As he left, he interviewed other fans and once again was sucker punched before deciding to call it a night. Okay. So the, ne- the next morning, a lot of questions are being asked of how this got How's so it being reported? How's it got so bad? Team President Ted Bondo said this was a good idea. He fronts the media the next day and he's repeatedly asked about the 10-cent beer promotion and the complete lack of oversight mm. for it. The media conference starts to get really heated about you guys didn't do enough, you know, which leads him to exclaim frustratedly at the assembled journalists, gentlemen, you're giving beer a bad name. <laughs> this is not a good look for beer. <laughs> I just love that. You were giving how beer. Dare how dare you give beer a bad name? Uh, the American League president, um, <laughs> he's less supportive. He says there's no question that beer played a part in the riot. America's may need a good five-cent cigar, but it doesn't need 10-cent <laughs> beer. So that's his quote. After the media conference, Bonda, the owner, calls a meeting of his executives, all the key people, and they all assume they're about to be fired. And surprisingly, Bonda is more interested in how to take advantage of the night. His first reaction, it says, was... That's why he's rich. Okay, this was obviously a terrible mess. How can we take advantage of this and turn it into something good? And that's the focus of the meeting. Instead of firing the people who came to him with this idea, he sends them to Milwaukee to investigate how they do beer night without riots. (laughs) Milwaukee, they learned they gave tokens out to fans so you couldn't just easily get the beers as much. A month later, the Indians again run a beer night. No. This time, 41,000 fans showed up, but there's no issues because there's limits in place. So it's like... It's still 10 cent beers? Yeah, but they limit to you can only have a few. You can't just go and lie under a beer truck in the chapel. (laughs) (laughs) But the weird thing is, instead of this night being an embarrassment, Cleveland's have sort of developed this civic pride if you go online you can buy t-shirts that say 10 cent beer night today on the net like there's heaps of them there's a turning point there's a turning point comedian and cleveland native drew carey later reflected some might consider the riot started by drunken fans as a black eye for the city but one of my friends was there and got hit in the head with a bottle and bragged about it for years (laughs) (laughs) the strangest story of the night probably came from a guy called ted uh, Dardian, who was a reporter for the News Herald at the time, he recounts a story from the Texas locker room after the riot. Three players 
Joe Lovato, Rich Billings, and former Indian player but playing for Texas Duke Sims had gone out on the town the night before. At one of the places they stopped, they encountered a young woman who claimed to be a witch and informed them that they'd all be killed the following night. We all laughed at her, said Lovato. <laughs> but after this, maybe I won't laugh so hard at anyone who tells me she's a witch. She wasn't too far off, was she? <laughs> there it is. Uh, I wish I was there. You, that'll be one of those nights in history where people go, I was there that night. And if you counted yeah. everyone, there would have been 200,000 people yeah, claiming yeah, to know. have been there. I think anyone in Cleveland would say, I was there. That is uh, unbelievable. Are they still in the stadium? Is it? Do you know? uh, no, they've got a new one now. Yeah, they've I'm built not. a much nicer stadium. <laughs> <laughs> now they're the Cleveland Guardians. But Is the river still on fire? The river's they've, better. They've cleaned that up. They've cleaned it. <laughs> I don't know about it. It's lost its mojo. It's lost its way. <laughs> Remember the good old days? Thank you, Titus O'Reilly. You've done it again. Some of the images you talk about will be available uh, via YouTube for this particular interview. Uh, if you don't believe us, uh, go to YouTube and you can see some of the fun, some of the exploits on this uh, memorable historic night. If you'd like more Sports Bazaar, things get even bizarrer, Join our membership program, Bazaar Plus. Very easy to do. Just follow the link in the show notes for this podcast or go to bazaarplus.com to join Bazaar Plus, our membership program. Cheers.